If you've been tracking with us through the Gospel of Matthew up to this point, in Matthew chapter 9, there are a number of stories that reveal the compassion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our great and wonderful Lord is the most compassionate person to ever walk the face of this earth. And throughout his human ministry, throughout his earthly ministry, he modeled and he acted out of his compassionate heart for humanity as we read over and over and over again in the New Testament. For example, Matthew chapter 14, verse 14, as we take a look at the one of the most well-known miracles that Christ performed in his life, the feeding of the 5,000. Do we know why or what moved him or what compelled him to perform that miracle in the first place? According to Matthew 14, 14, he performed this most outstanding deed because he went ashore, saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus looked at this crowd and he had compassion on this crowd and he showed that compassion by healing their sick. And as evening drew near and the crowds grew hungry, the disciples of Jesus asked him to send those crowds to the city so that they could go and grab some dinner. But compassionate Jesus took it upon himself to ensure that they would be fed. And so he miraculously provided all the people present, 5,000 men, but there were more women and more children, could have been upwards of 10, 15,000 people here at this time listening to Jesus. And in his compassion, he provided all the people present enough with enough food to eat from, to eat from just five loaves and two fishes. This sort of compassion... The compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ ought to be and has always been a mark of those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you study scriptures, you will realize that there are a number of people who, because they love the Lord and they know the scriptures well and they read about the compassion of our Lord and the sympathy of our Lord and the kindness of our Lord to those in need, to those who might otherwise be ignored or cast aside or forgotten by society at large, imitate the compassion of the Lord. A number of examples can be drawn out of Scripture of people expressing compassion. We read of men in the book of Ruth, men like Boaz. Boaz who saw Ruth the Moabite. As a Moabite, she's a foreign woman among Israelites. And remember, Moabites were ethnic outsiders. Moabites were people who had caused much torment and much trouble for Israel in the past. And as such, Ruth, as a Moabite in Israel, was particularly vulnerable in that society. But Boaz... Rather than seeing Ruth as some hopeless foreigner in Israel, rather than seeing Ruth as an enemy because she's a Moabite, or rather than just simply ignoring her as though she were no one at all, rather than allowing the men in the fields to abuse or scorn her, which would have been common for a lonely woman in a field in those days, Boaz ordered his workers to support her. He ordered his workers to let Ruth drink from the water vessels that they themselves or that the women had drawn for them. This was a reversal of the normal pattern because in this day, the drawing of water for vessels from which which the men drank 
was a, was a duty for the foreign women. They were required to draw water for the Jewish men. But here Boaz reverses it. You, Jewish men, you give her your water. Boaz was in no way obligated to help Ruth. In fact, he could have ordered her out of the fields. He could have reminded her of the deep hostility and the division that lay between them as he is a Jew and she is a Moabite. He could have appealed to the scriptural texts that speak to the Israelites separating themselves from the Moabites. But instead, Boaz sees past all of this. He sees past her ethnic background and he notes a woman who by virtue of her seeking shelter in the Lord moved from being a Moabite to being a true Israelite. And so, uh, so Boaz showed Ruth great compassion, inviting her to glean in his fields, meaning to walk behind the workers and to pick from the, the grains and, and st- such that were left behind by those workers. And he called on his workers to protect her, his reapers to protect her, his harvesters to protect her. And then he invited her to drink the water he had provided for his workers. And then, even, even more, he invited her into his home to eat with him at mealtime, letting her dip his bread, her bread in his wine. And then when she left, he gave her an abundance of food so that she could feed her family. Ruth was dumbfounded by this compassion. Ruth was dumbfounded by this sympathy. And so she fell on her face, according to Ruth 2.20, bowing to the ground, saying to Boaz, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz isn't the only story of compassion in Scripture. We also read of the widow living in Zarephath. In 1 Kings 17, we read of a widow who possessed nothing more than a handful of flour and a little jug of oil, and she had absolutely no prospects for the accumulation of any more food. She and her son were simply preparing to eat what little they had left and then to die of starvation. This is where they were. This is where their life was at. And yet this widow, as the prophet Elijah, who himself was hungry, requested some of her food, promising the Lord's provision in return. She prepared all that she had and she gave it to Elijah instead. And as a result of her compassion, the woman, this woman in dire need, who gave up all that she had, was blessed by the Lord in return. But it's not just Boaz, it's not just this widow, but we also read of Joseph in Genesis, a man betrayed by his own flesh and blood because of their unreasonable and ravenous jealousy with Joseph. They plotted to end his life. They started by plotting to end his life. But in the end, they thought better of that plan. And instead, they sold him to Midianite traders. Those Midianite traders then sold Joseph into the service of a man in Egypt named Potiphar. And now, if there were ever a man with reason to remain bitter and hostile, if there were ever a man who could justly say and remain viciously and savagely angry with his family, it probably was Joseph. And yet, after a series of twists and turns, after a series of imprisonments and trials, Joseph ended up rising to second in command of the entire country, second only to Pharaoh himself. 
And during that time, as Joseph ascended to that position, a famine ravaged the land in which Joseph's brothers lived. And they had no clue what had happened to Joseph. They didn't know where he was. They didn't even know if he was still alive. And so they traveled to Egypt in search of food because they heard that there is food in Egypt. And when Joseph saw them, instead of acting vengefully against his brothers, instead of arresting those brothers on the spot and sending them to their execution... Joseph provided them with the food that they needed. And Joseph brought his entire family to Egypt where they could and would be safe from the devastation that had been brought on by this famine. And it's not just Boaz, and it's not just this widow, and it's not just Joseph, but, Eve, but Jesus himself. Jesus himself told parables of compassion and acted himself out of compassion. You remember Luke 10? In Luke 10, Jesus told us of the Good Samaritan. A man, while traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell into the hands of robbers, and those robbers, they stripped him, and they beat him, and they stole his belongings, and they left him lying half dead in the street. And while he was lying in the street, a synagogue priest walked by, and instead of helping the man, the synagogue priest went to the other side of the road so as to avoid this man who desperately needed help. And after the synagogue priest came a Levite. And like the synagogue priest, the Levite also saw this man lying half dead in the street and jumped to the other side of the road and walked right by him doing nothing to alleviate this man's suffering. And while, so while these religious folk saw this man lying there and avoided him and did nothing to help him, uh, along the way came a Samaritan, someone hated by the Jews. They never thought that a Samaritan could do, would, could do anything good or anything valuable or anything worthwhile or anything compassionate. But it was this Samaritan on the journey who saw the man lying in the street. And the, the, the text tells us in Luke 10, 33, that it was the Samaritan who had compassion on the man. And he provided everything necessary for this man's recovery. And this is one of the great callings of our Savior to us who follow Him. Compassion for our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith and our fellow human beings in the world. And Christ modeled compassion for humans at every turn, revealing Himself to be the most compassionate person of all. Our Lord, when He was fastened to the cross, by wicked men at the instigation of the Jewish leaders. He didn't respond in kind. He didn't call lightning bolts down from heaven. And as the crowds insulted him while he hung there, he didn't insult them back, but instead cried out to his Father in heaven saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. This is the same Jesus who showed compassion to the thief on the cross beside him. This same thief who just a few minutes earlier, 15 minutes, an hour earlier, however long it was, was joining in with the crowds insulting Jesus, but who at some point along the way came to see something different in Jesus and so looked to the Messiah. He, he understood that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and so he looked to Christ and said in Luke 23, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And Jesus looked back at him and compassionately replied, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And still, the ever-compassionate one, as the soldiers crucified Christ and performed all sorts of humiliating acts against him, spitting on him, stripping him of his clothes, pulling out the hairs of his beard, Jesus noted that his mother stood nearby. And Jesus, while he is the one who is being put on the cross and fastened to the cross and humiliated, understood that his mother needed someone to care for her. And so he looked at his disciple John and he looked at his mother and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he looked at John and he said, behold your mother. And from that hour, the scripture tells us, John took Mary to his own home and he cared for her. Always, Jesus was always ready to express and extend compassion. And he called for that same thing from us. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the model of compassion for us. And his compassion has inspired so many throughout the centuries to imitate him in his compassionate life. Did you know that it was the compassion of the early church a compassion they learned from Jesus himself that turned the entirety of the Roman Empire upside down. Eusebius, the early 4th century church historian and bishop of a city called Caesarea, wrote of the early Christians. He wrote about their ministry of mercy in the city of Caesarea when a plague struck the city. A plague hit the Roman Empire in about 166 AD and that plague was so devastating that 3,000 people per day died. Millions of people, when all was said and done, were dead. 10% of the Roman Empire succumbed to this plague. And while the larger portion of Romans and pagan priests and family members and everyone left the city of Caesarea... They left the bigger cities in, in the Roman Empire to flee to the safety of the countrysides because they were less populated. As the pagans went into self-protection mode, thinking only about themselves and only about their own lives, it was the Christians who remained in the city. It was the Christians who turned the people over in their beds. It was the Christians who prepared the burials. It was the Christians who tended to the sick. It was the Christians who put themselves in harm's way to care for the sick and to care for the bedridden, those who couldn't flee themselves, those who were left behind by their families, left behind by their priests, left behind by their governments, left behind by their society. And these Christians paid a dear and heavy price for their compassion as a number of them died of the very same plague that they were helping these people with. And Eusebius, the church historian, recounts the scene, saying this, and I quote, All day long the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Other Christians gathered from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine, and the Christians distributed bread to them all. And Eusebius speaks to the results of Christian compassion in Rome. Their compassion to the helpless 
when he writes that the Romans, uh, the deeds of the Christians were on every Roman's lips and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such unrelenting compassion, such unrelenting commitment to caring for one another, along with sympathy and practical help and concern for those dying of the plague. And as they died of the plague, imagine these Christians and imagine the witness that they had as they said, I represent Jesus to you. I bring Jesus to you. He can save you. Call out to him in faith. Trust in him and he will forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life. They put themselves in harm's way. They proclaimed the gospel. They took care of people's needs compassionately and this brought about a major shift in the Roman Empire as a whole. This small band of Christians committed to the imitation of their compassionate Lord, Jesus Christ, instigated Rome's transformation. And this was angrily noted by an annoyed Julian the Apostate, the last pagan emperor of Rome. He was trying to bring Rome back to its pagan roots, but the unrelenting flow of conversions to Christianity could not be stopped. And so... Julian actually called for the pagan priests to start acting more like the Christians. You guys need to be known for compassion like the Christians are known for their compassion. And so Julian, the uh, emperor, wrote this. When it came about that our poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, it's the impious Galileans, meaning the Christians, who observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy, meaning humanitarian efforts, generosity, and compassion. It was them. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from Rome. And that aid was shored up. That lack of aid was shored up by Christians. And within the next 10 years, Rome completely switched. It became the seat of the Christian world. We've noted compassion on grand scales in the life of Boaz and Joseph and Jesus and the early church, but I want to bring it down to a man from about 100 years ago, one of America's most prestigious scholars, a man named Benjamin B. Warfield, President or professor of theology at Princeton until 1921. No one doubted Warfield's theological prowess, and I have a few of his works on my shelf, and I love his articles about the inspiration of Scripture. It was one of his key themes. And at the height of his influence, Warfield got married. And he went away on a honeymoon with his new bride, And while enjoying themselves on their honeymoon, they decided, you know what, let's visit Germany and let's hike to the top of the mountains in Germany. Sounds like an interesting time. Not a huge fan of climbing mountains, but it's good for them. But during the trek up the mountain, tragedy hit as Warfield's wife was struck by lightning. And from that moment on, can you imagine, on their honeymoon, from that moment on, she became an invalid. She was disabled and bedridden for the rest of her life. Imagine such a tragedy. Lesser men than Warfield might have left their spouse 
But Warfield spent the rest of his life caring for her, and rarely, if ever, did he spend more than two hours away from her at any given time. And he sat by her bed, day in and day out, reading to her. And when people would ask him, War- Warfield, why wouldn't you commit your wife to an institution that could care for her more so that you could get to writing more books and influencing more people? Warfield said this, and I quote, My wife is my ministry. I will never leave her side. I am going to love her and take care of her as long as God grants us life. Where did Warfield learn such compassion? Where did Boaz learn such compassion? Where did the early Christians learn such compassion? They learned it from the Lord. All of these examples of compassion by the people of God reflect an attribute of God that Christ revealed clearly during his ministry. It's a characteristic of our God praised and adored all throughout Scripture. For example, King David cherished the compassion of our Lord in Psalm 103 when he wrote this, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. And as we come to our text this morning, we are once again confronted by the tender-hearted gentleness and mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ. As his kindness is extended, not to just one daughter, but two. One daughter dying, one daughter suffering. And our story begins this morning as Jesus, still speaking to John's disciples about the incompatibility of new wine... And old wineskins was interrupted by a synagogue official as we read in verse 18. Look at it. While he was still saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. Now Matthew has a way of condensing stories and leaving out details. But this ruler, uh, we know, as we read in Mark and Luke, is named Jairus. And according to Mark 5.22, he is one of the rulers of the synagogue. While not rabbis or Pharisees, the rulers of the synagogue were tasked with ensuring orderly worship at the synagogues, an order that was heavily influenced by the scribes and the Pharisees. The ruler of the synagogue would be well-versed in what is permitted and what is prohibited in worship. He would have known the laws of the Lord. He would have known when you are unclean, you're not permitted into the synagogue, and when you are clean, you are permitted. And he would have excluded and or barred people from approaching the Lord in worship at the synagogue based on these criteria. But even with all of this knowledge, Jairus was the father of a precious little girl. And because of this love that he had for his little girl, he threw caution to the wind and he sought the help and compassion of Jesus. Now, remember, the Pharisees had just recently suggested that this Jesus was himself a blasphemer. You remember, just a little bit earlier, he, Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. But that didn't seem to matter to Jairus. It might very well be that Jairus had followed Jesus around over these last few days and witnessed the authority of Christ over a number of different avenues. He might have witnessed Christ's authority over disease when he healed the leper with a touch, a touch that for everyone else would have disqualified them from temple worship. But Jesus is different. 
when Jesus touches the unclean, he doesn't contract their uncleanness. He extends cleanness and he extends wholeness to those whom he touches. Jairus may have witnessed Christ's power and authority to heal sickness over a distance without needing to touch the person. When Christ listened to the Gentile centurion's request and healed the man's daughter from afar. Jairus had probably heard about Jesus' authority over creation itself when he calmed a raging storm at sea by simply rebuking them with his words. Word might have gotten back to Jairus that Jesus possessed authority over the demonic realms as well. As the demonic shrinks back in terror at the approach of Christ, the demonic begs Christ not to torment them before their appointed time. Perhaps Jairus witnessed Christ's healing of the paralytic and heard Christ's forgiveness of that same paralytic's sin and noted the proof of his authority to do so when Jesus actually healed the man's paralysis as well. And so Jairus, seeing the compassion of Christ, seeing Christ's complete disregard for the man-made extra-biblical rules and standards that had been put in place by the Pharisees, came to recognize that this Jesus is a different sort of man. Whereas the scribes and the Pharisees would never consider eating with tax collectors and sinners, here is Christ reclining at the table with a crowd of them. And when the Pharisees ask Jesus about it, he rebukes them, the Pharisees, for their complete and total lack of compassion. Now, Jairus must have noted all these things. It must be computing in his mind that Jesus is a different sort of religious leader. Otherwise, what he asks Jesus to do in verse 18 wouldn't make any sense. And so Jairus approached Jesus and knelt before him. You see that in the text? He knelt before Jesus. This is another surprise because synagogue rulers, these men with the respect of the community, simply didn't make a practice of humbling themselves before anyone else. These were the influencers of the day. These are the men who stood by the door of the synagogue and watched people come in and said to them, your hair is out of place, the tassels are not right, your clothes are imperfect. But Jairus was desperate. And in an act of profound self-humiliation, and in an act of obvious respect for Jesus, he knelt before Jesus and made a most stunning and surprising ask. Look at it again in verse 18. My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Again, Matthew leaves out a number of details that are filled in by both Mark and Luke. Matthew likes to condense the narrative. And instead of including the, um, the record of men coming from Jairus' house to later report the death of Jairus' daughter, Matthew, for the sake of brevity, records Jesus simply saying, my daughter has just died. He puts the two into one sentence. As older versions will say, my daughter is even now dead. All of this indicates that Jairus believed that his daughter might very well be dead as he approached Jesus. At this moment, she was on death's door when he had left to find Jesus. 
for Jairus to find, ask Jesus to follow him to his house so that Jesus might lay his hand on her comprises a rather bold request. It's almost like Jairus said to Jesus, I have witnessed and seen your compassionate touch extended to the unclean. I have seen how your touch heals the unclean. I ask you, I beg you to please extend the same mercy to my daughter who even now at this moment might be dead. Had Jairus gone to any other religious leader of the day with the same ask, the answer would have been an automatic, no way! For Jairus to ask a rabbi to come and lay his hand on the body of a dead child, no rabbi ever did such a thing. As we noted in the compassion of the Good Samaritan earlier, the Levite and the priest, did they touch the body on the street? No, they walked on the other side of it because good religious folk of this day didn't touch dead bodies. They had no intention of touching them and contracting uncleanness from it. They were following, or so they thought, laws set out for them in Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 to 13, where we read this. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the, with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean, his uncleanness is still on him. So the Pharisees had this distinction between clean and unclean that didn't match up with or measure up with Scripture's view of clean and unclean. So sin and holiness were one spectrum. Clean and unclean were another spectrum, right? Sin is disobedience to the Lord, but clean and unclean was not necessarily a sinful condition. You see, uncleanness in the Old Testament could come upon a person for a number of reasons, many of which were not even your fault. For example, you're walking down the street and a bird is fluttering about in the air. The bird has a heart attack in the air and comes fluttering down or comes flying down. And it hits you on the head on the way down. You're unclean. You're unclean for a week. But the Lord provided people with ceremonies necessary to be clean and therefore permitted once again to the worship of the Lord in and at the temple or tabernacle again. If you noticed in Numbers 19, the reason that one needs to cleanse themselves is because uncleanness, according to Numbers 19, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. So these laws were not instituted to keep people from showing compassion to one another. See, the priests, the priest and the Levite who walked on the other side of the road while the man suffered on the road completely misunderstood the cleanness laws. They completely misunderstood the whole of God's law. They completely misunderstood how God had revealed himself in Scripture as a compassionate God. It was no sin for them to help this man. In fact, it was sinful for them to not help this man. You read it in James 4. 
whoever knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, it is he who sins, right? And Jesus reveals this to be the case here, that it was no sin for him to help somebody and to lay his hand on somebody who needed his help when in verse 19 it says, Jesus rose and followed Jairus with Jesus' disciples. You see, Jesus didn't look at Jairus when Jairus asked him. Jesus didn't look at him in disbelief. Jesus didn't give Jairus some sort of pharisaical answer like, (laughs) are you kidding me? Do you think that I would go and touch a dead body? Are you serious? You think I would follow you to your house and put my hand on that little girl's body and make myself unclean? Take off, Jairus. No. Jesus, our compassionate Savior, gets up from whatever he's doing and he follows this desperate Jairus back to his house. Now imagine being Jairus in this circumstance. Imagine the urgency with which you hope to get Jesus to your home. Time is of the essence, Jesus. Every single second is so very important. Jesus, you simply have to hurry to my house. However, in true, typical Jesus fashion, as Jairus interrupted Jesus when he spoke to John the Baptist's disciples, so a woman comes out from the crowd that had been following Jesus and interrupts the journey to Jairus's house. Now, I remember being in Bible college and we were learning about this narrative because you've got Jairus, it's like a sandwich, right? You've got Jairus, the story of Jairus as the bread, and then you've got this interjection of the woman with the issue in the middle. And this, this teacher of mine was so committed to popular movie theory that he assumed and taught us that this woman who comes to Jesus in verse 20 was simply a foil in the story designed to heighten the urgency that the reader feels in the narrative. This woman didn't really matter. She was there to make you more aware of the fact that Jairus' daughter was dying. It annoyed me to no end when the teacher suggested this in class. It annoys me now just to even think about it because it's simply not true. This narrative reveals the wonderful compassion of Christ. First, that he would get up and follow Jairus. And second, that as everyone is hurrying Jesus along to get to Jairus' house, when another of his precious daughters needs his help, he stops everything to focus on her as well. It's such a sudden about face in the story. The crowd is following Jesus, waiting with eager anticipation to see what Jesus can or will do with Jairus' daughter. And now this expedition to his house grinds to a halt as he singles out and focuses on another daughter. The crowds are impatient, and Jairus is impatient, and the disciples are impatient, but... That matters very little to Jesus. This woman, this woman requires his help, his healing, his assurance. And in the same way that Jesus is always available to help and assure his sons and daughters all over the world, at this very moment, he was more than willing to give the same to her. 
Jesus was never so preoccupied that he avoided compassion and help to those who called upon him for it. So what was this woman's issue? Look at verse 20. It says, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. So this uh, woman suffered from a condition that, according to Leviticus 15, made her perpetually unclean, meaning she had been disqualified from worship with the community of Israel at the synagogue or the temple for the entire duration of this illness. In Leviticus 15.25, we read, If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in her uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. And not only is she unclean, but everything she touches is unclean. Everything she sits upon is unclean. And uncleanness, again, in the Old Covenant, meant that for the time of one's uncleanness, they were not able to worship at the temple or the synagogue. Now, for all of the women out here thinking, well, this isn't fair, just so you know, every bodily discharge resulted in uncleanness, whether you were a man or a woman. But this woman was a societal outcast on the level of the leper in chapter 8. She suffered from this condition for 12 long and arduous years. And Mark tells us she suffered much under the medical treatments of many physicians. And instead of getting better, she increasingly grew worse, or she grew increasingly worse. And Luke tells us she spent her entire life savings on these doctors. All human power, all human ingenuity, all human prescriptions were exhausted in efforts to cure this woman's ailment and yet every single one of them had failed and she was worse off at the end than she was at the beginning and Luke the gospel writer who himself was a physician who himself was a doctor made this declaration that by normal human means she simply could not be healed and so this woman makes a bold decision one that might get her in a ton of trouble as she decides to press and to push through a crowd of people, making each one of them unclean as she touches them along the way, as she pushed through the crowd secretly. Had she announced her condition before walking into the crowd, she most likely would have been blocked by a number of well-meaning religious folks. Women like you just don't get to to enter into the presence of a religious leader like this. But that's not the heart of Christ. She kept it secret, and she pressed through the crowd and brushed up against a number of people in order to, look at the text, touch the fringe of his garment. Now, had she done this to any other religious leader, and that religious leader found out, they would have absolutely lambasted this woman for what she had done. How dare this unclean woman touch a religious leader? Now in the Old Testament, there's something this woman understood that maybe we aren't grasping or that the people around Jesus didn't grasp. 
In the Old Testament, the Lord told the people of Israel that you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. You will always see uncleanness and the defiling of the tabernacle associated, because that's what uncleanness does, defiles the Lord's tabernacle. And the tabernacle represented the dwelling place of God among the people of Israel. And the uncleanness of the people infected the tabernacle and therefore threatened the presence of the Lord among the people. And so the Lord instituted two two, uh, sacrifices for this to, 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 to ensure that this was taken care of. In Leviticus 4, the Lord instituted the sin offering. And the sin offering was an offering that purified the altar and purified the curtains and purified the bowl and different things in the first room of the tabernacle along with the outer court. And the Day of Atonement was when the most holy place of the tabernacle or temple was cleansed of the uncleannesses brought upon it by the people. So you see, in the Old Testament, uncleanness would creep its way to the temple and defile the temple, and it needed to be cleansed and eliminated. But the arrival of Christ, God come in the flesh to dwell among us, changed absolutely everything. No longer do the uncleannesses of humanity contaminate the dwelling place of the Lord. But instead, now the cleansing power, the redeeming power flows out from the person of Christ and makes those who come to him clean and whole and well. It's a tremendous shift, one that the people then were just simply not prepared for. It took them a long time to figure this out. But this woman seemed to grasp it. This woman seemed to understand something that nobody else did. And so she pressed forward, full of faith in Christ, that he would make her clean if she could just get to him. It's a good lesson for all of us, because the same is true for all of us. Christ can and will make everyone who comes to him in faith and in trust, repenting of their sin, spiritually whole and spiritually well. She knew She understood that Jesus was different. And when she actually did get to the place where she touched the tassels of Christ's garment, she was immediately, instantly healed of her condition. These tassels that Jesus was wearing were tassels mandated by the Lord for Jewish men to wear. And they served a specific purpose, as we read in Numbers 15. Numbers 15, verse 38 to 40 We read this. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after, so that you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So the tassels of the observant Jewish men were designed to remind them to obey the Lord and not to follow their hearts. That's what the woman touches. Our version says fringes, but the word is the tassels. Now, as an aside, I just want you maybe to flip to Numbers 15 because I want you to underline something in Numbers 15, if you can. This is just an aside, something that everyone in our current culture ought to hear. Because one of the 
relentless words of counsel in our culture today is what? Follow your own heart. Just listen to your heart. And have you noticed that as we fan that flame and keep continually push people to follow their own hearts rather than saying, oh, no, 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 obey the Lord. His will is good. His commands are precious. And following him leads to life and life to the full. Read Psalm 119. We're going through it on Wednesday mornings. You read it. The answer to everything, according to the psalmist in 119, is reading God's word, obeying God's word, loving God's word. And we, in our culture, are fanning people to follow their own hearts. And by so doing, we are inspiring and creating an entire generation of complete and total narcissists. Narcissists being those who live as though they are the center of all things. Their ideas and opinions are the center of reality. All society and all culture and everyone ought to see my views on things conform themselves to fit and meet and accept my understanding of how the world works. Have you noticed that many, if not all, of the agitations we're facing in North America spring out of this exact issue? They spring out of an entire generation of people who have been told to follow their own hearts so often that they've become so self-centered and so narcissistic. It's a culture of unrelenting, angry, and aggressive narcissists. And way back in the Old Testament, we were told. It's like the Lord knows what's going to happen, right? Way back, the Lord said, I want you to put these fringes and tassels on your garment, and they are going to remind you, what? Not to follow after your own heart. You should underline that. When somebody tells you, oh, you know, just follow your heart, bring them back to Numbers 15 and say, actually, it's right there in the law of God not to follow our own heart, but I want you to notice the strength of language the Lord uses to tell us not to do it. Did you see the word that God chose to use in this text? Listen to how the Lord defines it. Let's read it again. Not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Are there any words much stronger than that one? Following after your own heart is equated in Scripture as whoring after yourself. The desires, following the desires of our own hearts and our own minds over obedience to the Lord is the equivalent of whoring after yourself. Something we should remember. But that aside being done, these tassels that Christ and all Jewish men wore in this day were meant to remind everyone to avoid following your heart and eyes like the plague and to instead remember to obey the will and the commands of the Lord. And this was something Christ was completely committed to. Christ always obeyed the will of his Father in heaven. And so this woman comes through the crowd, and she touches those tassels on Christ's garment. Now, 
The fact that she touches the garments and is healed by those garments reflects an Old Testament prophetic word. We find that word in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. And in Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, we read this. The Lord said to the people of Israel through Malachi, For you who fear my name, the Son, S-U-N, of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Now the word for wings here in the Hebrew includes the idea of fringes of the garment. Malachi prophesied well before the arrival of Jesus, four centuries before the arrival of Jesus, that for those who fear the name of the Lord, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, will arise with healing in the fringes of his robe. And the fact that this woman presses through the crowd, touches the fringes of Christ's robe, and is healed is a sign of the good news that the Messiah is here. He has arrived, and he is mighty to save, and he is mighty to deliver not just this woman, but everyone who believes in him. And this woman knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that all she needed to do was simply touch Christ, and she would be made well. What a faith she possessed. And Jesus, knowing what she had done, turned to her. Look at verse 22. He turned to her, and seeing her, he said, take heart daughter your faith has made you well and instantly the woman was well did you notice it even when in a hurry even when focused and preoccupied by a rather serious issue the issue of another daughter on her deathbed Christ made time to stop for this woman he loved this woman he saw this woman he turned to this woman She wasn't just simply another face in the crowd. Jesus saw her. He looked at her as the crowds pushed and pulled and tugged at Christ as one father worried for his daughter hurriedly tried to usher Christ to his home. Jesus still slowed down to give this woman his undivided attention to speak affectionately to her. Why? Because Jesus is merciful and compassionate and good he always has time for his children and he always hears you if you love him by grace through faith he always hears you when you call out to him if you truly believe in christ this is your savior if you believe This, your Savior, savior is both sovereign over all things, holding creation in His hand, upholding and directing all things, while at the same time, at the very same time, always available to you, always ready to turn to you, to see you, to comfort you, to love you, and to encourage you. And as He did with this woman, He loves to say to His children, Take heart. Your faith has made you well. Be comforted, be heartened, be assured. And as he says this to, as Jesus said this to this daughter, put yourself back in Jairus' boat position. What must Jairus be thinking? Okay, yes, you're saying this to this daughter, but what about my daughter? 
Please hurry. We, and we know from Mark and Luke that Jairus' housemates at this point come to Jairus and confirm his daughter's death. But Jesus proceeded to travel to his house regardless. And as Jesus drew near, as he arrived at the house, the text tells us, look, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Meaning, the funeral had already started. And at this time, a funeral was a humongous public spectacle of mourning. As hired flute players and loudly weeping and wailing women were hired for the occasion. And Jairus had the means to hire a number of wailing women and a number of flautists to the point that the scene had descended into some noisy, chaotic commotion. And as Christ comes onto the scene, he sees the commotion and he says in verse 24, look, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. In other words, go away, you're not necessary here, weeping and wailing women. No funeral arrangements are required here because the girl is not dead. She's sleeping. And all this commotion is too loud for someone who is trying to sleep. And when the people heard Jesus say this, they laughed at him. You see, sometimes we moderns tend to look at the ancients and think, well, they're, not just, they're just not as sophisticated as we are. They seem to be easily fooled, but the people laughed at the idea that Jairus' daughter was sleeping. Why? Because they know a dead person when they see one. And the dead don't just simply wake up from their death. And Jesus, up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, has not done anything quite as miraculous as raising the dead. And so the people scoffed, and they ridiculed, and they made fun of Christ. But verse 25 tells us that when the crowd had been put outside, Jesus went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. Once again, Jesus touched the unclean. Jesus took this dead girl by her hand and according to Mark said, Talithakumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And miracle of miracles, wonder of wonders, the girl arose. Christ's compassion is once again revealed in his tender care and in his breaking of the societal rules. Here, Jesus reveals his compassion for two of his precious daughters. And what Christ did for the daughter of Jairus, Christ will do for every single one of his children. Because you know Christ is the great healer in that he heals all of the souls of everyone who calls out to him by grace through faith. He heals everyone who pushes and presses their way to him for grace and salvation and forgiveness from their sins. Christ holds the keys to death. And he has defeated death. And he shows his power over death here in raising Jairus' daughter from death. And in this picture, he prefigures his ultimate victory over death. That day when he takes each and every one of his children by the hand and he speaks those wonderful words to you and to me, child, I say to you, arise. This is the news that we go out and we speak to the world, that one day our Lord is coming back to take us by the hand, to raise our bodies from the grave and reattach our spirits to those bodies and to give us new life. 
And in the same way that the report of Christ's raising Jairus' daughter didn't remain a secret, but instead circulated throughout all the district, so we too, as the people of Christ, circulate the news of our future resurrection, a reality that is secured for us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and we offer it to everyone else as well. You can one day be raised from the dead. You can one day have your spirit resurrected or your body resurrected and brought together with your spirit once again. And we do this for the exaltation of Christ. We speak this and tell this to the world for the exaltation of Christ and in hopes that people will hear and understand the compassion of our Lord, the mercies and the wonders of Christ and so commit themselves to Him along with us. And so join themselves along with us in this great privilege that we are given by Christ, which is eternal life in Him. This is great news. Jesus, God come in the flesh, is oh so compassionate. And He does not follow the dictates and the expectations of society and culture. But instead, our loving and merciful God inclines His ear to listen to you who call out to Him. He turns and he sees you in your trials and in your troubles and in your tribulations. And he stops to comfort and speak to you through his word as you press through the crowds to get to him. Think about it. He inclines his ear to you even though you're weak and frail and unworthy of such love and grace. Even though that is all true in, to Christ, you are not simply just another face in the crowd. Because Jesus is love, because Jesus is good, because Jesus is compassionate, he calls each and every one of us to faith and life in him. And if you've taken him up on that offer, if you've taken him up on his guarantee of forgiveness through belief and trust in him, and he says to you today the very same thing he said to the woman these many years ago. Take heart, your faith has made you well. Your faith has delivered you. For the woman, it was deliverance from her sickness. And Christ may very well heal you of a sickness if you're facing one right now. But if he doesn't, the greater wellness the greater deliverance, the greater redemption that has been secured for you by Christ is not deliverance from your physical sickness, but the deliverance of our souls from the power and the penalty of sin. From eternal death to eternal life. In all things, press on to Christ. Push through the crowds. Get to him like the woman in the crowd. And when life seems a little chaotic, when you get desperate and it seems as though Christ isn't hurrying to your aid, remember Jairus' daughter. When it seemed as though all hope was lost, Jesus rescued her. He will ultimately do the same for every single one of his sons and daughters. Talk about a compassion that we can tell the world of. Talk about a compassion that we ought to model in and to the world. Talk about a compassion that if we, like Boaz and like Joseph and like the early Christians, commit to it with the Lord's help, 
This compassion can and will change our city for the better. So may we be known, Winona Gospel Church, as the compassionate children of our most compassionate Lord in this city. And in so doing, speak the wonders of the gospel to our city and hopefully see our city turn to Christ as a result. Father, we thank you and we love you and we praise you. And Lord, we are so encouraged by your word. We are encouraged by the the model that has been set for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the narrative that we read today. We thank you that in your wisdom, you put it down for our eternal remembrance. And I pray that you would inspire in us both a recognition of your compassion, that we can come to you and we can talk to you and we can call out to you and we can cry to you when our lives seem to be turbulent. But also I thank you and I pray that you would inspire in us as we imitate our Lord Jesus Christ, who was the most compassionate person to ever live, that you would inspire in us a compassionate heart towards our fellow believers and the people of this world. And I pray that as we seek to obey you and we seek to proclaim you in this world, that people would come to the saving knowledge of Christ. We've seen it happen in the Roman Empire and we know that you, we've seen it happen in Ephesus. We know that you can do it again. So we pray that as your people, we would honor you, obey you, and you would work through those efforts. We pray this all in our compassionate Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.